Kansans take pride in their free state history, yet dozens of black men were lynched in the state between the Civil War and World War II. David Condos of the Kansas News Service reports that the history of violent racism can still be felt today. Historian Jim Liker walks up to one of the few remaining limestone buildings at Fort Hayes in northwest Kansas. This was the guardhouse. And over here would have been the mess hall. And the 150 years ago, there would have been more than 200 soldiers on this plot of prairie. Back then, most of the men were African Americans, Buffalo soldiers. About a mile north stood the newly formed town of Hayes City, which was mostly white. It was just a recipe for a lot of chaos. On the night of January 6, 1869, three black soldiers, Luke Barnes, Lee Watkins, and James Ponder, sat in a Hayes City jail accused of shooting a white man. By sunrise, they'd been dragged from their cell by a mob of white townspeople and hanged from a bridge. 120 years later, in 1989, the county commission gave a five-mile stretch of road near that bridge a new name, Noose Road. It kind of left a mark on Hayes's early history of race relations that never quite went away. Kansans sometimes romanticized the bleeding Kansas days, when abolitionists like John Brown fought to keep slavery out of the state. But that free state pride tends to paper over brutally racist parts of Kansas history. Two events, the 1869 lynching and the 1989 naming of Noose Road, represent a small glimpse into an uncomfortable history of racism that still lingers. To me, Noose is a rope with a knot in it. What you do with it, that's your choice. The Noose Road debate started on social media and spilled over into a county commission meeting last June. It was racist then and it's racist now. Because somebody got mad at the name of a sign. How did I not know this? It's incredibly important that the name be changed. In the end, the county ditched the Noose Road name. It's now Rome Road. But the damage remains. And it can't be undone by renaming a road name. Ashley Lawrence Sanders teaches African American history at the University of Dayton. She says lynchings reflected a strategy carried out by white settlers. They wanted to continue to maintain the boundaries of their space as white spaces. Violence was a way of enacting those boundaries. After the Civil War, hundreds of communities across the Midwest made clear they were sundown towns, where African Americans weren't safe from attack after nightfall. In western Kansas, that list included Liberal, Nest City, and particularly Hayes. In the first half of 1869 alone, Lynchings and riots in Hayes claimed 11 black lives. Black people may not have even been alive when this lynching happened, but the memory of that violence persisted into these communities that a perception still stands of Hayes and other surrounding communities that this is not a place for black people at all. And Hayes isn't the only place in Kansas debating racist landmarks. A Civil War monument in Wichita makes a point to honor Confederate soldiers. A Topeka school district is named after a Ku Klux Klan leader. Carmeletta Williams is the executive director of the Black Archives of Mid-America in Kansas City. We can always say that was in the past, but you can't move on until you address it and confront it and deal with it. Today, Hayes is a town of about 21,000 people, roughly 88% white and 1% black. And for that 1%, honestly, people like myself, we are growing weary. Nichelle Chance teaches at Fort Hayes State University. When she's spoken up about racism on social media, she's received death threats. Her nine-year-old son was called the N-word while playing with neighborhood kids. That is still indicative of the energy that supported sundown towns. Her husband, Demetrius Chance, is a community advocate. Hayes is a nice place, but when it comes to being vocal about racism or about these issues, 
Nobody wants to talk about it. So last fall, the couple formed a local group that provides space for people of color to talk about their experiences. Around the time of the Noose Road debate, they helped organize the town's Black Lives Matter protests. I might can't save the world, but in the community I'm in, I'm going to make sure that I make the biggest impact and encourage and empower as many people as best as I can. I got to keep pushing. For the Kansas News Service, I'm David Condos in Hayes. You're saying if it was not for the white people who practice racism, white supremacy, Mr. President Obama would not be in the White House? If, if any black person who forgets that is getting a very, forgetting a very important fundamental, he couldn't even been running. His name would have been not been known. He wouldn't have had a white mother in Kansas. 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 The cows. Uh, Gus T. in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of racism. Information for non-white people, victims of racism. Today's date, Tuesday, November 21, 2023. So I have been told, man, once again, one of the most important books that we have read over our long time, more than a decade of having a book club, James Lowen, suspected racist, Sundown Towns, a hidden dimension of American racism. Uh, so important, so glad that we read that one cover to cover, gets mentioned so frequently. As does the state of Kansas. Seems like we've been talking about them forever, uh, for some reason, at least solid for a good year plus or more centered around Roger Galuski, I think. Anyway, that is a big part of how we got to the broadcast for today. I say check the news locally, nationally, globally. Try to be like Dr. Welsing, other folks that we say we, you know, were inspired, motivated by. Uh, try to check. Hey, I'm not in Kansas. I have been to Kansas before briefly, but very far away. Two zones two time zones away in fact but I do read the Kansas City Star often mostly because of Roger Golubsky bring him up later even though we've talked about him before but really because of him I check all the time daily really uh, Ralph Yarl and things just kept coming up serial killer in that area lots of things kept coming up related specifically to Kansas pause for President Obama that's it I checked most recently within the past few days or so and they had uh, an op-ed for my family the Ku Klux Klan's grip on a small Kansas town was personal just earlier this month I said wow that's stunning okay so I'm checking out the report and grandpa has a quarrel with the Klan and they come and mess up the shop and everything they have to move and leave town like wow that is that is crazy uh, and then I look and there's even a memoir to accompany all of this that gives even more detail about this dispute which ostensibly a white person having a quarrel with the clan how about that decide to go dig read the memoir and get even more details uh, be fascinating to discuss uh, actually this is Kansas history and a teaspoon of Colorado history as well even fancy that as much as we have been talking about Colorado all year it seems 
that pops right up in the middle of all of this as well. Uh, our guest for today's broadcast, in addition to writing the op-ed that was published, or I guess republished in the Kansas City Star earlier this month, uh, she has two master's degrees, uh, and at least at the time of the post, 31 hours from completing her PhD. Uh, she is an avid reader, uh, and she, in that memoir, excuse me, in the op-ed, she talks about her family memoir, Isla's War. Lots of detail, as I said, about, man, what happened with this clan dispute, and then other amazing moments of 20th century U.S. and world history, World War II. I know we have some fans of well, World War II scholars. Bingo! This would be in that category, too. Uh, be a hoot to have her on the program and get more details. Joining us live, our guest, Cindy Intrican. Uh Ms. Intrican, you're with us? Yes, I am. Thank you for the introduction. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your Tuesday evening uh, for our listeners who maybe had this is their first time hearing from you. Uh, kind of a brief intro, who you are, the work that you do. Well, um, I'm a retired social worker. Um, my area of practice was community mental health, focusing on adults with severe and persistent mental illness. Uh, but now I am on a self or self-assigned mission to save old houses in my hometown of Lincoln, Kansas, to prevent them from being demolished. Uh, so I currently own four old houses that I'm rehabbing. My two goals are to save old houses and not lose money. I'm not interested in improving the houses and making money. I just want to break even and know that I saved the house. Fascinating. Okay. Uh, you said you're retired now, but at least in your professional career uh, in mental health, um, are you familiar right. with uh, Jonathan Metzl's book, Protest Psychosis? I know you're an avid reader. Have you heard of that book before? No, I haven't. Tell me the name again so I can look it up. Protest Psychosis by Jonathan huh. Metzl. Okay, I'll look for it. Right on. Reading more important than watching television. Uh, particularly for <laughs> the, say that all the time, uh, for this broadcast, for folks who've not visited your website or seen your books and such, you are classified as a white woman. Is that correct? Yes. Grand. Uh, for this, oh, man, especially we get to talk about the Klan. Uh, for this program, we always start off with our definition for racism. I use the term racism and the term white supremacy as synonyms. I use the same definition for both terms. That definition, a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? Well, there's no question in my mind. I don't know how there could be a question in anybody's mind. 
racism does exist. It's everywhere. We see it everywhere. Um, and that's really global definition. I, I have not heard that before, but I think it's uh, very powerful and accurate. It's kind of scary, too, to think about your de- in, within your definition of subjugating everyone in the universe that, um, unfortunately, I think that's accurate and scary. I would agree. It is scary. Terrifying, even. Uh, terrorism. Yeah. Terrorism. Yeah. Man, yeah. oh, man. Um, okay. For... I guess before we kind of get into the book, uh, op-ed, all of this, I guess you already told us, just making sure, you grew up in Kansas, born in Kansas? Yes, yes. I grew up in, uh, my hometown is Lincoln, Kansas. It's uh, just a little tiny rural community in north central Kansas. Lincoln, okay. So my orientation forgive us kansas city chiefs fans they said nearly 30 many people there are 30 million people watched the tackle football contest last night sorry the chiefs did not come out so how far is lincoln from kansas city kansas uh, i'm kind of guessing that it's about three hours lincoln um um, Interstate 70 crosses north central, crosses east to west through north central Kansas. Lincoln is 14 miles north of I-70. So once you jump on I-70, it's a straight shot to Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, but I'm going to guess that it's going to take three hours unless you're like me and you speed. <laughs> okay. Not not too too far, but okay. That's a little bit of a distance. No, I mean in a rural in a rural state like Kansas, you you're used to driving any place or every place. Um, Wichita and Kansas City are the exceptions. I mean, you know, I, it cracks me up to hear people here in Wichita complain that it takes them fifteen minutes to get from their home to a restaurant. Well, in Lincoln, it may take fifteen minutes or twenty minutes, thirty minutes to go from Lincoln where there. Are, is only one restaurant open in the evenings to Sylvan Grove where there is another restaurant open in the evening. So, you know, 15 minutes is no big deal when you're in a rural community. Wow. Okay. And so you said Lincoln, this little tiny rural place in Kansas, uh, this for sure sounds like a so-called sundown town. Did you, do you remember growing up how many black people were there in Lincoln? There were no, black residents in Lincoln. And I was taking notes as I was listening to your introduction. I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if Lincoln was a sundown town, but I don't know that. Um, I write an occasional column for the Lincoln paper, so I'm going to do some research on that. And and if if that is the case, I'm going to write about it. Oh, share the research. I would like the, the I love researching uh, what whatever information you find. And then please, if you write a column, let me know, because I think that's so important. In fact, uh, book number two. Are you familiar <laughs> with uh, James Lowen, his book, Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism? I'm not. I wrote it down when you mentioned it in the introduction 
because I, growing up, I heard the term sundown towns, and when I when I first heard it, I didn't know what it meant. Um, and so I do know what it means, but I uh, I didn't know which communities in Kansas were until you mentioned some of them in your introduction. I see. More research for everyone. Uh, Kansas is uh, prominently featured in James Lowen's book, uh, but I'm saving that for later because he also prominently talks about Colorado. And since that's in the memoir, I can get a twofer. Um, but did you read President Obama's memoir, Dreams from My Father, A Story of Race and Inheritance? Not yet. Um, I haven't. Uh, and it's on my list. I have a stack of books on the side of my bed that is about two feet tall, and I'll work my way through it. Gotcha. Same here. Same here. Always lots of reading. <laughs> More important than watching television. We read this book. Yeah like a decade ago. This is one of the first books that we read on the book club. And of course, President mm-hmm. Obama's white mother, also a native mm-hmm. Kansasian. And uh, yeah. he, this is what he writes in his book about Kansas. He said uh, about his grandparents, white grandparents responding to their white daughter marrying a black dude, an African dude, no less. He says, or yeah. writes, would they let their daughter marry one? We don't know yet. The story to this point doesn't explain enough the truth is that like most white Americans at the time they had never really given black people much thought Jim Crow had made its way north into Kansas well before my grandparents were born but at least around Wichita it appeared in its more informal genteel form without much of the violence that pervaded the deep south glad we had that intro for today the same unspoken codes that governed life among the whites kept contact between the races to a minimum when black people appear at all in the kansas of my grandparents memories the images are fleeting black men who come around the oil fields once in a while searching for work as hired hands black women taking in the white folks laundry or helping clean white homes. Blacks are there, but not there, like Sam the piano player, or Beulah the maid, or Amos and Andy on the radio, shadowy, silent presences that elicit neither passion nor fear. And I'll stop there. What do you make of this telling about the Kansas that his grandparents grew up in, Wichita? Well... I didn't grow up here. I I didn't. Wichita is quite south, and it's huge compared to Lincoln. So I know very little about the history here. But I uh, I was struck by what you were reading because it sounds so accurate. The, the one thing there that jumped out at me though was the reference to Amos and Andy. Would you read that section again? Yes, ma'am. Let's see. He says, uh, let me get the beginning of the sentence. Okay. Uh, Black women taking in white folks laundry or helping clean white homes. Blacks are there, but not there like Sam, the piano player or Beulah, the maid or Amos and Andy on the radio, shadowy, silent presences that elicit neither passion nor fear. No, I disagree with that reference to Amos and Andy. I, because I think that, that that radio program was 
what's the word I want? It was uh, a prominently displayed, supported white endeavor to ridicule blacks. I think it's the, one of the most disgusting things I've ever heard. I don't. Are you familiar with the 1920s radio station in Virginia Beach? Oh, no, ma'am. Let's hear more details. No, ma'am. Well, it plays um, generally plays old music from 1900 up until maybe 1950. I'm going to say, but on Saturday night. And Sunday night, they play old radio programs. So like Saturday night, Fibber McGee and Molly, Ozzy and Harriet, um, um, Mel, Mel Blank. Um, Sunday night, I, I listen every Sunday night because 8 o'clock Central Time is Jack Benny. And I can remember watching Jack Benny when I was a little girl. Then at 8.30 is Phil Harris on Sunday night. Then I turn it off at 9 o'clock because that's when they have old Amos and Andy radio programs. And I think it's disgusting. It comes on now on the Sunday nights? Yeah. They, well, that's as I said, the 1920s radio station in Virginia Beach plays only old music and on Saturday nights and Sunday nights they have these old radio programs half hour radio programs um, I was really dismayed when I can't remember what used to be on there I listened because I used to listen every Sunday night from 8 until around 11 they'd have the Dennis Day show, um, they'd have our Miss Brooks and stuff like that. But once they started playing Amos and Andy, then that's, uh, I couldn't listen anymore. I'm going to have to check. You said this is Virginia 1920s. What station is this in Virginia? It's 19, just a minute. My computer's right in front of me. I got to open it up though. It's the 1920s radio station in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Oh, stupid thing. Sorry, not you. It's my computer has given me fit. The 1920s radio station in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Let me find it here. Okay. Okay. You have to get it on the Internet. Of course. Okay, so... The 1920s Radio Network, it's, it's a 99.3 FM. And I'll, I love a whole lot of it, but I have to turn it off when Amos and Andy comes on because it makes me sick. And that, as I said, I don't, I don't think it was invisible. I think it was very prominent, and I think it was a deliberate uh, activity to ridicule and demean black people. Hmm. Do they give like a disclaimer or an explanation as to why they are pl- like, do they get no. The, no pushback to people like, Hey man, you can't be playing this. It's 2000. You know, there's no, I have, I, but I don't listen to it all that much. The radio station all that much anymore. Cause now I'm listening to a, a radio station in London, but uh, I've never heard a disclaimer. Wow. I know 
uh, Turner and some of the other like TV channels or radio stations where they play same type of thing where they play vintage content from way back when uh, maybe they'll play birth of a nation or something else similar oh, and they'll shit. give a big disclaimer like, Hey, we know this is racist, but you know, we're playing it for whatever reason, but we totally acknowledge racist wrong, that sort of thing. Or they'll have put <laughs> no pushback. <laughs> that's a, and people protested right. for years. Like that's the thing to get Amos and Ann. Black people protested for years to get Amos and Ann. Woo, that is amazing. I'm going to check that out. Much obliged. Um, okay, we got Obama out of the way. Mommy from there. Um, you, I guess. You know, I, I want to go back to President Obama for a minute. Um, because when the primary for the very first time, for the first um, uh, for his first election um, here in Kansas, I, I don't remember what they called it because we don't. Kansas doesn't have a big primary election like some other states that do. But that particular night, there was a um, a caucus, I guess would be the correct term, of Democrats and all of all of um, those of us that that identify that are Democrats went to this caucus. It was at a grade school here in town. I went with my best, one of my friends and my daughter. So they had the the school, they had different, like the auditorium was for uh, Hillary Clinton and the gymnasium was for uh, Barack Obama. And so my daughter and I uh, got separated somehow, but we were both in the um the gymnasium for uh, Mr. Obama, and my friend was in the other area for Hillary Clinton. So it was really cool to see the hundreds of people who were in the gym for this caucus for Barack Obama. It was it was, it was something I thought I'd never see. <laughs> John McCain did win Kansas in two thousand eight. <laughs> Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I don't know that there's ever been any Democratic candidate that has won won in Kansas because Kansas is is such a red state. That's funny. Wow, I have a white. No, I don't think it's. I don't think it's funny. I mean, I I recently wrote a, I guess you'd call it an opinion piece for um, an online newspaper called the Kansas Reflector and. I wrote about my dismay that the Republican Party has become insane um, because a million years ago, I, I, I was a Republican. I was probably a very, I mean, this is back in the 70s. Um, I was a progressive Republican, and there were a lot of social issues that, that um, I did not agree with the Republican Party on, but I was sort of fiscally conservative, but as they got more nuts, there was no way for me to stay there because uh, I, I couldn't fit in and I couldn't swallow their shit. I hope that doesn't get you in trouble. Sorry for saying that. I couldn't swallow their stuff. Mm. Okay. Uh, that's, I do, I want to, get questions in about the book as well but since you did bring that okay. up that's one point i do want to make many times when white people speak about racism white supremacy racial narrowing one of our listeners coined that phrase 
uh, they will speak as though the racist and she didn't even say racist we got nuts and even an expletive she didn't say racist uh, but they will act as though the racists are just the Republicans and that just cannot be you could be a white person no. and there we go. That's super important, particularly for a global system of white supremacy racism. It can't be that the yeah. racists are just in the Republican Party like that. I mean, talk no. about donkey. Come on now. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. All right. With the book Isla's War, because that's how we get to the whole manuscript and all of this. These even more details in the book, which, of course, it should be. That's just the hook to get us with the old uh, op-ed. Why did you write this here book, Isla's War? And what is what is all this here about? Well, I wrote the book because I have to back up and say uh, the one day I was successful in getting my grandmother to clean out anything in her house where she'd lived for 55 years, she pulled out a, a pile of paper that was wrapped in dirty string, and I we had already thrown away her receipts for her electric bill from the 1930s. I'd finally convinced her she didn't need those anymore. So she pulls this big stack of paper out with the dirty string around it. I thought it was probably the receipts for the water bill or something. And it turned out that it was 475 pages of letters that my great aunt Isla had written to my great grandparents before and during World War II. And I, all, all my alarm bells went off because I thought this is, these are historic, this is historic information. There's got to be some fascinating things in there. So she gave, I asked for, and she gave me the letters, um, Unfortunately, I didn't do anything with them for several years because it was during the time I was working on a Ph.D. in social work. But when I finally decided it was time to look at the letters and see what was there, um, I had also Annie Isla had come to stay with me and she had seen the stack of letters and she told me she'd made a tape recording of her life. And she offered to send me a copy. Once I heard that recording, I realized that there had to be a story there about how how she came to be the what I consider to be an independent woman in such a constraining time historically, especially the more I learned about my great-grandfather and all the trouble he got into, all the trouble he created for the family, the more I, the more I thought about him and how he had to have affected Isla, especially when I look, looked at the difference in the four sisters, my grandmother and my three great-aunts, how different they, each of them were. They all went through the same kinds of craziness as a result of my great-grandfather. So I knew there had to be a story there. And then as I thought about it some more, and I realized that my daughter didn't know the story. By that time, my grandmother was dead. My mother was dead. My grandfather was dead. The only, Auntie Isla was dead. There was only one great aunt still living. 
And I did not want, I, I felt, I, I viewed myself as uh, a repository of stories and memories of people that my daughter would never, ever know. And certainly my grandchildren wouldn't, grandchildren wouldn't know. In fact, they wouldn't even think to ask. So it seemed important to me to try to write about Isla and the family history so that it wouldn't be lost. Wow. Right on. Family is important uh, for sure. Sometimes not even knowing the value of things uh, that can happen frequently uh, and making sure that, you know, try to preserve as much as we can. I will say uh, when you were talking about, uh, I guess it's your great grandfather, uh, fornicatress. Wow. What a great word. I'm going to see if I can get that in my vocabulary without name calling or insulting uh, anyone directly, but fornicatress, great word. Um, Okay. So you get these letters and start doing some digging and and say, I want to make sure that I do something with all of this. It ends up being this book, uh, Isla's War. uh, And (laughs) it starts off. So you have your, again, Isla, your great aunt. Uh, so it starts off with your white family. This is early 1900s, Kansas, uh, super white environment. And I guess what, what background details would you get? Religion seems like that's a big, big deal uh, for this time period and your, your family members. Yeah. Yeah. Because my great Isla's mother, my great-grandmother, Florence, uh, her dad was a fundamentalist minister. Um, he, he was, he and his wife, she wasn't a minister, but, but I think she bought into his worldview. Um, they had a really punishing, punishing view of, uh, religion, I think. Uh, I was shocked. For example, I can't remember whether it's that they had either two or three, their first two or three babies died very shortly after birth. And so my great grandfather Rogers decided that that those, the deaths of those babies was God's punishment that he and his wife, my great let's see, great-great-grandmother, that they shouldn't be married. And so they separated for quite some time. I was absolutely shocked when I heard that story. Somehow or another, I guess, he finally decided that maybe he'd gotten God's message wrong and it was okay for them to get married, and they got back together again. But, I mean, that's an example of the lunacy of, of his religious beliefs. And it impacted my great-grandmother, Florence. Um, I, my, my grandmother, Wava, told me all kinds of stories about, that Florence, uh, about Florence and her worldview. Um, it, was, it was not good. Okay. Um, I, guess to, I have to get us to Colorado because, hey, that's sundown towns in Colorado, too. 
So well, I have to, before you before you do that, I'm, let me be upfront and say I know very little history about Colorado because I have never lived there, but I'll do my best. Carry on. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Just sticking to the story is enough. Um, so, and the term fornicatrice uh, comes up in how we get transplanted to Colorado. Uh, the, I guess, fornication um, that's against the Bible and all of that. And it seems so. This is your great great uh, grandfather is having an affair of some sorts, and so it's hey, my my yeah my great grandfather. Great grandfather. He had a right. Right, just one great. <laughs> he had a three-year affair with this woman who was married to somebody else, and I, the 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 explanation I have in the book of how Florence found out about the affair. That's one of uh, the um, examples where I had to take some. Uh, creative writing um, um, I'm not sure what the term is I had to I had to try to figure out how she learned about the affair um, but yes it, this affair went on for three years finally he decided to break it off and he would go to various towns around Kansas trying to get away from her She'd always find him and follow him to whatever town he was in. So throughout north central Kansas, he went to a whole lot of different towns trying to get away from her. Wacky. Um, Yeah, really. With all of this uh, piousness and morals (laughs) of early 1900s, uh, rural Kansas, uh, the family decides we're going to just get away, abscond to Colorado, get away from this fornicatrice and see if we can start over. Uh, we get the harrowing, uh, train ride out to Colorado. Uh, and that's where I stopped where I said, Hmm, I wonder what James Lowen has to say about Colorado. And that's it's in there so prominently. Uh, he writes, this is in his chapter, The Nadir Continued to About 1940. That's the actual chapter name. Triggered by the astounding success of the birth of a nation, the Ku Klux Klan rose again after 1915. Only this time, the Klan was national, not Southern. It dominated state politics for a time in the 1920s in Oregon, Colorado, Oklahoma, Indiana, Georgia, and Maine, and had great influences throughout rural and small-town America. In the same communities, especially towns that all that had already driven out their African Americans, the KKK targeted white ethnics such as Catholics, come up in the book, Italians, Poles, mm-hmm. or Jews. Klan support was another reason why Congress passed the President Coolidge signed the 1924 Immigration Act to restrict newcomers from just about everywhere except northern and western white Europe. I'll pause there, but Colorado comes up regularly. And in fact, since you all, your family relocated specifically to uh, Rocky Ford, I checked. Mm-hmm. According to the U.S. Census, this is for Rocky Ford, specifically from 1890 to 1970, 
uh, for the first three decades, so that's 1870 through the end of the century, zero black people in Rocky Ford, Colorado. They finally get 32 black people in 1920, and then it drops every, or almost every year from there. It drops, and it never gets above 18 uh, in Rocky Ford, Colorado, Suntown Town. That's mm-hmm. one of the big messages from James Sloan's book, The Sundown Towns abound uh, and even when you said constricted before I was like man nobody is more restricted than people classified as non-white and especially black people because they couldn't mm-hmm. have done what your family did like eh this Kansas thing isn't working out for us you know we're going to pack up and no <laughs> like you could not just pick up and even the journey there you could be killed yeah. is accurate yeah, yeah absolutely I mean, a black family, if there were a black family experiencing the same kind of things that that my great-grandparents had, I mean, that woman, grandpa having an affair, the woman harassing him really and stalking him, um, if having just having the resources to pack up and leave would have been, might have been almost impossible or impossible for a black family because of the, of the, difficulty in finding any kind of job that that wasn't that, that paid any anything that was a reasonable wage and being able to pack up and leave i don't know how it could have been done terrence what did we say it's scary oh my god can you imagine being a black family mm-hmm. early 1900s we're gonna leave and go someplace like someplace west Frightened, yeah. terrorizing. Oh my God! Like, oh, oh. Anyway, so they are not black. They don't have to ponder all of that. But they go to Colorado, and things do not exactly. Uh, I cannot believe we've been talking about Colorado so much this year. That is just amazing for so many reasons. They go to Colorado, and things do not exactly pan out, and they end up moving back to Kansas. Yes. Yes, Grandma and the three girls came back to Kansas. Grandpa stayed out in Colorado. That's I well, I mean that's what it, this is 1920. Um, grandma, my great grandma, packed up her and the girls, and they came. They went back to Kansas. They went to Lucas, Kansas, um, which is a really tiny, tiny town. Although Lucas does have the Garden of Eden. Um, and they also, Lucas also has, um, the world's, I think it's called the world's greatest, most decorative toilet, public toilet. Um, Lucas is a peculiar little town. Um, at any rate, she, she and the girls went back there. She hired an attorney and she sued the other woman for $10,000 for alienation of affection. Uh, when I went through um, old court documents looking for whatever I could find, uh, that's when I found out about the lawsuit. It had never been mentioned by anybody in my family. So I don't think anyone knew about it. Um, when she filed for divorce in 1920, then they dropped the lawsuit. But uh, filing for divorce, especially if you're the daughter of a fundamentalist minister who believes that women are submissive and that marriage is forever, no matter how bad it gets, 
um, it took quite a bit of guts, I think, for her to do it. Actually, it surprised me that she had that much uh, strength, uh, emotional, moral strength to file for divorce. And when she did, sometime after she left Colorado, my great-grandfather left and went down to Dodge City, Kansas. And when she filed for divorce, he was served the divorce papers in Dodge. I think, I'm not sure, but I believe that the reason he went to Dodge is that his father, my great-great-grandfather, was a cowboy. And he helped drive cattle on the Cimarron Trail, which goes through Dodge. So I I believe uh, that my great-great-grandfather spent time in Dodge uh, drinking and um, gambling. This is not the fundamentalist minister, by the way. And so... Uh, I think that's where my, why my great grandfather went down there is he'd heard about Dodge or maybe even gone there when he was young. Hmm. Fascinating. Okay. And you in the book, even the term stands out to me so much. Your great grandfather, he gets accused of white slavery by this yeah. fornicatrice. Um, yeah, even even the term, they don't even just slavery, what white slavery specifically. Um, well, that was the term that was the term that was used back in the day. Right. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, it was, it, it was um, the man act, um, M-A-N-N, that was meant he was a senator and the underlying. uh reason for the passage of the Mann Act was that young women were leaving home and going to work in cities or in the fact that they were leaving home and going to work. And so uh, that was, you know, not what women were supposed to do. They weren't supposed to leave home. They weren't supposed to get jobs. They were supposed to get married and have babies. Uh, and so the Man Act was a supposed supposed to protect women um, from exploitive bosses uh, who might take advantage of them of the women because they're so uh, inexperienced and naive and innocent. So they called it, you know, they called it white slavery. Oh, I don't know why. I am familiar uh, with the Mann Act just because uh, I've been a student of uh, Jack Johnson, former heavyweight champion, for some years. Yeah. And that's eventually uh, how they were able, they could not find a white fighter to beat him in the ring. So they were able yeah. to lock him up, inshallah, Muhammad Ali some years later. Uh, around the same time yeah. period act. And in fact... That right there, there is a pretext with this that white women, because we certainly do not care about black females. So, I mean, hey, that's yeah, who this yeah. is about, so-called protecting. Uh, this is about white women and making sure that they do not fall into the hands of 
Jack Johnson uh, or some Chinese workers that we've brought over here, that sort of thing. There is a strong subtext and sometimes it's very explicit. We need to protect white women from the sexual clutches of black male. And sometimes it would even be the same prohibitionist forces. We've got to have get rid of this alcohol because same thing. White women might fall prey to the sinister raping Negro, Jack Johnson, that type of a thing. Uh, you're a historian. Am I being accurate? Yes, you are. Um, here, there is a uh, there's a uh, community theater group here in Wichita that's called the Forum Theater. And a couple years ago, they did a really wonderful play about Jack Johnson. Um my husband and I went to it. It was so profound. It was very moving, very troubling, because he was a he was a brilliant fighter. And they, you're right, they couldn't find anybody who could beat him, and so they had to find another way to get rid of this man, to take him off the world stage, trying to humiliate him. Familiar story again, Muhammad Ali, but. 50 years yeah. later, not the man act, but yeah. familiar story. Um, yeah. So I guess back with your, so we get the white slavery charge, very embarrassing. Once again, salacious, blah, blah, blah. Um, then we get to, so your great grandfather, entrepreneur, gets his, I guess, restaurant up and rolling. Uh, business seems to be doing very well. Uh, but as James Lowen, we just re- the birth of a nation. Uh, we have talked about that film. It is so important. That is right in this time period. Uh, they still, that's one that yeah. comes on like Turner classic movie and some of those old, old timey, uh, like TV channels where they'll play a film like that. That is this time period. Hey, day of the Ku Klux. You could, that movie was probably in theaters at this time. That's another one right there with Amos and Andy. Black people had to go yeah. around and protest that. Like, can you please not show this black people eating fried chicken and trying to rape white women? Can you please not show this? Like, oh, you can go back and read like reams of newspapers about this same time period. So this is the heyday of the KKK in Kansas and elsewhere uh, in the U.S. They're marching regularly uh, in Kansas and elsewhere. Uh, your great grandfather, he really likes Porky Zink's bread. <laughs> the clan yes. comes to him and they say, what? The, the clan comes to him and says, we want you to switch bakers. We don't want you purchasing your products from the Catholic baker. We want you to purchase your products from the Protestant baker, who, by the way, is a member of the Klan. And, and your great-grandfather says? My great-grandfather says, hell no, don't tell me what to do. Um, it was an ongoing thing for almost two years, according to other to interviews that I did, that the Klan harassed my great-grandfather for two years. And one of the interesting things is, you know, he was, all of the, many of these Klan members had businesses on Main Street in Lincoln, as did my great-grandfather. So he knew them. They did business together. These guys would go into the restaurant to eat or to drink coffee. 
But then they begin to harass him because they wanted him to change his business. Since there were no African-Americans or Jews in Lincoln, the, the people that were the target of their hatred were the Catholics. Hmm. You, uh, in the book, Isla's War, I thought it was important that uh, you point out, you know, Porky's Inc., that's who your dad, or great-granddad, that's who he's uh, baking with. And you write that uh, he wanted the restaurant to be successful, and he thought that the bread and buns made by Porky Zinc were better than the bakery products made by Herman Nock. And that's the baker that the KKK that's exactly wanted him right. to switch exactly to. Right. And I thought that that was really important because, uh, and that even caught my eye in the report, this situation is not your great-granddad I'm a crusader against the Klan. I'm against racism. That's not what this is. This is, yeah. I want my business That's to right. be successful. The Klan baker, they're like bricks. That's what you said. They're like rocks. Their buns are like rocks. I'm not, nah, forget that. <laughs> like, yeah. Just to make sure that that's accurate, this is not some anti-racist crusade. Yeah, it, that, that is accurate. And that's one of the the things that that um, that I I realized when I was writing the book was that Grandpa wasn't taking a stand because he was appalled at the racism. He was taking a stand because he thought that he'd increase his business at the restaurant if uh, he used better products. Uh. You know, there's a, there's a, over the years as I've, uh, learned uh, of the racist beliefs of some of my family members. Um, I don't know what to say. I, I suppose that if you're really, if, if you're honest with yourself, I, I can't imagine that there's not a white person in the country that that can't say this makes me disgusted, this enrages me, this makes me sad. How could you think that? And while I can acknowledge that they fit in with their the era in which they were living, that doesn't make it right or excuse it. It was just the pervasiveness of it. It was everywhere. Someplace in, in my book, I, I've talked about, and I've often wondered if people are born with, and almost the minute you take your first breath, you inhale uh, the racism virus, um, and it just slowly grows in your body. Um there is no inoculation for it, and you have to, well, I mean, I guess there is, and it's education, and it's self-awareness, but that doesn't come for most people very early in life. Mm. I want to read this portion about uh, Porky Zink here as we, we go through the, your uh, great-grandparents' brawl with the Klan. But I just I want to unpack what you just said uh, as an avid reader for years. I've talked about the importance uh, of metaphors uh, and you just that was a big one. Uh, the metaphor, uh, the virus 
of racism. Uh, number one, I guess, do uh, when you say people, uh, it's almost when you take your first breath, you inhale the virus of racism. Do you mean everybody or do you mean individuals classified as white inhale this virus? I mean, no, I don't think it's restricted to white. Unfortunately, I think we all, uh, I think we all inhale it. Otherwise, we wouldn't see the the killing of people of people who, you know, I you know, right, right at the top of my head, the one that we're all exposed to now. We're listening to blow by blow accounts of the horrors going on in Gaza. Well, how can you know? I, I and I've just struggled. I don't understand. There's absolutely, as near as I know, there's no difference between a Palestinian baby and a Jewish Israeli baby. And yet, the justification for the horrific attacks that are going on in Gaza now is, it seems to me that that, that, that whole group of people uh, that are trapped in Gaza are are being viewed as less than human, so it's okay to attack them. But I don't know whether you would call it racism or or hatred. But you know, I think back to even in the the massacre that happened in Rwanda of one group of black people killing another group of black people. Is if that's not racism, I don't know what it is. Well, for sure. And they have actual books written by white people uh, who point out historically with lots of footnotes and evidence that white people, so-called French, but white people uh, are responsible for exactly what happened in Rwanda. But if I go back, as I say, those metaphors. So you said everyone inhales the the virus of racism. Uh, Putting that metaphor to the side, would you say uh, that everyone, white people, and non-white people, everyone practices racism, white supremacy? No, I don't think it's, I, it, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that a black person practices white supremacy. That doesn't make sense at all. But I do think that, that we all have to look at our personal beliefs and actions and see if they are girded if they're if they're supported by racist beliefs that 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 seem to to float around in the universe um, i i think that everyone is racist and that if we're going to have if it's even if it's ever possible to to finally say that the whole the whole idea of race is a social construct for if if we ever can get to the point of that everyone acknowledges that that it's a social construct developed to um, to elevate one group of people over another group of people um if we're ever going to get to the point that we can all that we can say that and believe it, 
then we all have to look at our own racist beliefs and actions. Oh, well, let's pause right there. Uh, Man, this was codification that I picked up from earlier in the year. Although I will submit, I suspect that you could be trying to deliberately confound us, bamboozle us, if you will, uh, Cindy Intrican, because you started off, you said that I don't think non-white people practice racism. I think it doesn't make sense to say no, a black no, person no, practices white supremacy. Hang on a second. Hang on a I second. Said. You said okay. it's not logical for a black person to practice white supremacy. That's what you said. It's in the recording. Then yes. you talked for a little while and then you said that everyone practices racism. Now, I've already said racism and white supremacy are one and the same. For you to start out saying that it's not logical to say that a black person practices white supremacy. And then you come back later and say that everyone practices racism. That is suspicious. Uh, talk even hypocritical, I would say, but I will pause right there. You said everyone practices racism. You are included in everyone. So you, yes, Cindy, yes, Intrican, yes. how do yes. you, a white woman, practice racism well um, I'm trying to think of an example of something that I have done I think that I've read um, and heard I'm I've I've had people say to me when uh, um, a black man walks by um, a woman that she might pull her purse closer to her. So now that being aware that that is an experience that a black man or black woman could have, I am very aware of uh, that practice and I make an intentional uh, decision not to do that. Does that make sense? I read and heard, I have heard over the years that that uh, it's common to see a, it, like in a restaurant or something, a white person saying to a brand, a new mother of a white mother of a white baby for the white uh, onlooker to say, oh, what a beautiful baby, but to ignore the black baby close by. And so, because I think all babies are beautiful, I make it, um, I'm intentional that if I am someplace where I see babies, that, that it does not matter to me what color or race they are. I comment on them because I think they're beautiful. So let me pause right I'm... there, Cindy. Let me pause right there. Okay. And I just want to share this for our non-white listeners, victims of racism. Now, I said I was waiting like, oh, we boxing metaphor. I was waiting Jack Johnson style like, oh, man, this is knockout. White people will get loud, put their chest out and speak and say that everyone practices racism often in the context of suggesting that non-white people 
practice racism. And I said from this summer, the last time that I had a white person on the program do that, I said from now on, the counter is immediately everyone practices racism. You're everyone. How do you practice racism? We get the same stumbling. They don't have the same confidence when we get to talk about how Al Sharpton or me or Obama practice racism. Now they don't have the same confidence. Cindy, you didn't even give us a way that you practice racism. In fact, it was so removed. You couldn't even look at your own experience. You have been on this planet for decades. Are you telling us a white woman born in a racially restricted region? Are you telling me that there's no point in this time on earth? You have practiced racism, white supremacy as a white woman. No, Okay. But, Let's no, hear one I of them. As opposed but to telling I, me, wait a minute, as opposed to telling us ways that you don't practice racism, which is what we got, can you please, since everyone practices racism, how do you, Cindy Intrican, give us one or two ways that you have practiced racism? Well, I'm, I understand what you're asking me, and I'm trying to think of an example, uh, but nothing comes to mind. And I, I hope that the reason nothing comes to mind is because for the last X number of years, I've been, I've tried to be much more aware of racist practices so that I don't do them. The the first example, the only example that comes to my mind is one that I mentioned in the email. Are you Gus? Hello. I'm, I'm, we're listening. We're listening. I'm, are you, are you Gus? Yes, ma'am. Or yes, ma'am. Gus? Yes, okay. ma'am. So in, in the email that I sent to you, I think I, I, if you remember, I wrote to you that my first experience with racism when, was when I was five years old. I heard, I was at, um, uh, my friend's house who lived across the alley from me and she used the N word. I didn't know what it meant. I had absolutely no clue that I remember going home for lunch and standing in the kitchen with my mom and saying the N word. I don't remember the context, but I remember saying it. And I remember my mother's reaction. She whirled around and got about three inches from my face and said, if I ever hear you use that word again, I will wear you out. And I knew exactly what she meant by that. And I have never used that word except when I have been in a conversation where someone has, has said that and I have said to them, I find that word offensive, don't use it. So my first racist action that I can recall is when I was five years old and used that word. Hmm. I, I suspect that there are probably many more acts, uh, thoughts, speech, there probably actions are between I, five. And, how old are you now, if, you, if I may ask, just so we have context? I'm 73. 73. Okay. Yeah. That, as I said, decades, that's more than yes. a half century you, as a yes. white woman and in a racially also, restricted yes. region. Yes. But you also, if we're going to talk about decades, Gus, then we need to talk about some of the other incidents that I mentioned in 
my email to you. Well, hang on. I have a question because you've you've done three (laughs) now. We still have not got one act of racism, really. I mean, you send Nigra at five. I mean, okay. Uh, No, that's not the word I said. Your time uh, and your time working in mental health, did you see any Mm non-white patients? Oh, heck yes. Heck yes. A lot of non-white patients. And and I, (laughs) I had forgotten about it, but I kicked the person out of the program because they kept using uh, of the services because they kept using the N word and wouldn't stop. And it was very deliberate. Okay. Um, in terms of the patients that you saw, do you think the non-white patients that you saw, do you think they got the same treatment as the white patients? They had to from our agency. I mean, I can't, I can't attest to any other agency, but we had non-white staff, Doing the same, providing the same services, getting the, the staff providing the same services as the, the white staff. Um, we had a, a two nurses. One was white and one was African American. We had case managers, uh, white and African American. We had um, psychiatrists. There was not at that time that I that I know of a black psychiatrist here in town, but uh, two of the psychiatrists were from uh, India or Pakistan, I think. Um, uh, and so, yes, the if the clients didn't receive the same services, then the staff person wouldn't stick around very long. Hmm. That is fascinating. Uh, one, even just because of the book that I already mentioned, uh, protest psychosis, that is one of the points of the book that black patients do not get the same treatment as white patients. And that's kind of an institutional thing, uh, in, Yeah, hang on one second hang on one second in many books and in fact a part of that literature includes the fact that having non-white medical staff is not to use your term from before is not an inoculation from the problem of white supremacy racism because hey you said everyone is infected and unfortunately the research shows that particularly in healthcare that even when you have non-white healthcare workers, still frequently, institutionally, non-white patients do not get the same care as white patients. But that's just one. I mean, like I said, there's lots of data on reprotest uh, psychosis. Jonathan Metzl, see what you say, see what you uh, think after mm-hmm. that one. Um, before uh, I don't want to get lost here. Even in fact, I'll look at the book here. I thought this was important. This is going back to granddad and this dispute with the KKK, uh, which I thought was important. As again, I said, great granddad was not on an anti-racist crusade. I'm just trying to run my business. He tells them Porky Zink is a good, excuse me, is as good an American as any of you, probably a damn sight better. And he's my friend, just like many of you are my friends. That was another one that stopped where I said, oh, man, hey, do not be thinking this is a non-racist white man on of some sort of I got morals. Black people are cool. They're humans. And we no, no. 
he has yeah. friends in the clan, yes? Yes, and I never, I didn't write it. There's nothing in there that implies that he was not racist. Oh, for sure, for sure. I'm, I'm reading from the book. You put it out black and white, as they say. I'm just getting at because I think sometimes non-white people, we get confused and or willfully misled uh, to think that just because a white person is having a disagreement with another white person, one of them is not racist. And particularly in instances where it's a white person in some sort of disagreement with a Klan member or so, some, someone who is explicitly racist, just because that white person has a disagreement with them, even fisticuffs or what have you, that does not mean that white person is not a racist. Far from it. These are my That's homies. True. And he, you even wrote in the book, yeah. the, the Klan marched by all the time. This was like a weekly occurrence. They normally just didn't stop by and harass and you got to switch up your baker and all this stuff until later on. But it wasn't like they were coming out there like, whoa, whoa, we do not tolerate t- uh, terrorist thugs coming by our establishment, scaring our cut. Get on out of here. And I don't like racist either. Get on out. That didn't happen. These are my friends. No. <laughs> until they started yeah. to harass me about my baker. Hey, right on. I just don't want to join. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, you're absolutely right. You haven't said anything incorrectly regarding that. Love it. Love it. This is, I was confused. I do enjoy having authors on the program who can, you know, just add a tidbit. So when you get to the point, they have this big kerfuffle uh, with the plan, um, excuse me, with the clan, and they eventually come and like break up the, the windows at the joint and all of this super, I guess, I don't know what to say of it. You write, you can't imagine the fallout. Wava, that's your great, your, is this your grandmother's sister or great grandmother's sister? Wava, W-A-V-A. Is that? Yes, your, ma'am. Is that Wava? That was my grandma. Grandma. Okay. Wava, yeah. grandmother, had a conniption yeah. fit. I was, I love that term. Yeah, um, wait, let me finish wait. this really quick. Con- Wava oh, had a conniption fit. She was mortified by the Klan's attack at the restaurant. What will people think? You shamed me in front of my friends. Those were her exact words. Yeah. She immediately dropped out of school at Lincoln, bought a one-way train ticket, and went back to Lucas to return to high school there. What? You, so this is your grandmother. What was she? What was the source of her shame here? Break that down for us. Well, I think. Her shame was uh, that Grandpa had uh, fought with these clan members that that he had uh, just you know had this big conflict with the clan. That's the only thing I can think of. Um, The part that you're reading is not at the trial, or is it after the trial? Because I'm not sure what page. I don't don't know what page you're on. I don't know where you are in the book. Oh, I have the e-copy, so I suspect my pages probably won't. I'm in Chapter 15. Uh, Let's see. It is mm, kind of, well, kind of at the middle of chapter 15 it looks like uh damn right i am now don't get riled nobody's saying you aren't but it doesn't look good doing business with someone who's low oh. to... got it okay yeah i think i yeah just a minute 
Maybe closer towards the yeah. end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she, I think she was just, she was embarrassed. She didn't like, you know, everything is very public. She, it took me years. And in fact, I didn't finally come to this conclusion until years after my grandmother had died that image was everything. To her and the people, the, the, the guy who was the head honcho of the clan uh, was, the, by everything I have heard, was a successful businessman. He owned a, I guess it would, today I guess we'd consider it a department store in Lincoln and Apparently, as near as I can tell, he had quite a bit of money. Um, and so to my grandmother, the perception of uh, it was important to her for people to, to view her and the family as, I don't know, uh, successful or fitting in or whatever. And so my great-grandfather's fight with the Klan and refusing to do what they wanted, uh, she was embarrassed by that. Hmm. I was processing when you were trying to process your grandmother's feelings. Would it be would it be accurate to say she wanted your family to be perceived as good white people and having this brawl with the Klan would disrupt that image of being good white people? Um. I suppose, but I was, I would think it's probably, at least at that time, since there were no African Americans in Lincoln, I think she wanted her family to be, to be viewed as good people, not white, black, or anything else, just good people. I think that was her view at that time. Mm. Having a dispute with the Klan seems to... There are expectations about how we want you to behave as white people and non-adherence has consequences. Like it seems like reputation with other white people. And as you said, no, no black people there, but still like. uh, So not only were there the I've learned that that whole area of the state, uh, Lincoln, Barnard, uh, Tescott, Hunter, what's the name of that town? There weren't any. There weren't any black people in this whole area, this whole region of several counties. Uh, but Catholics in in those counties were under attack, even so far as that couldn't be on the school boards. And I learned that uh, there was a Klan house in Barnard. I, it's, it was called that. It was a, apparently some house that where they had their meetings or whatever it is that they did. And so I, I guess the point I'm making is that in that area of the state at that time, my grandmother's view was just, I want to be, I want to be seen as 
a good person, and I want my family to be seen as a good family. That's for sure true. But I mean, she said specifically her friend, you've embarrassed me in front of my friends. Like, yeah, it seems yeah. like her friends are probably cool with the Klan, too, which is not hard to imagine at that time period. Like the whiteness of it just, yeah, you've crawled with the with the Klan and any good thinking white person is, you know, oh, God. And how was your grandmother waver when she dipped? She hops on the train at this point. Oh, um, they're about that I was mean. in night. Oh, I'm trying to think. It was 1923 or 24. She was uh, 15. It depended on when in the year. 15 years old. Wow, that is that is <laughs> Moxie. I don't know. Like that's. Uh, <laughs> constrained that's with a question mark like man i have rarely seen time periods when white women are constrained certainly not uh i look at black people and i look at white women Hmm. (laughs) okay um you continue i've hopped a few so now i'm in chapter 17 uh you write in isla's war both mother and daddy had soft spots for those men, black or white, who, and I even have to pause before I move forward when you were talking about some of these, maybe even uh, details as to why Waver, your grandmother, departed at 15. I don't even know if I could have hopped on a train at 15. Um, these were powerful white people. I, I hear that also as a way to bamboozle and lie. They will submit that racists, Klan members, are poor, down and out miseducated white people who dropped out of school and have two teeth. That's not what you said about the Klan members in Kansas. These were wealthy business dudes, some of them who had lots of money and lots of power. And that's something that I've heard over and over and over. Same type of thing that I hear with Republicans. It cannot just be that the racists are just poor down and out white people in Appalachia. Like that does not make sense for how this would get all over the world in all areas of people activity and last for generations and centuries. Like you cannot just blame this on poor white people, poor white men, no less. Uh, you write chapter 17, both mother and daddy had soft spots for those men, black or white who were hungry, tired and dirty. Couldn't have been too many black people. I never saw them turn a single soul away. Daddy kept the table complete with a tablecloth and napkins in the kitchen where my, where we fed many a hobo and where we also served Lincoln's soul <laughs> Lincoln's soul black resident James Mitchell as I, I even have to pause right there like how did you get all this this detail about James Mitchell did your did waver that she remember James Mitchell like specifically it wasn't grandma that talked so much about him as it was my mom. Oh. Um, he, um, Mr. Mitchell was uh, a figure around town, and uh, I'm trying to think. I really, I, I had forgotten, because uh, he died before I came along, so I really didn't know much about him. But when I interviewed uh, um the mother of a an acquaintance of mine about the Ku Klux Klan, she brought up Mr. Mitchell and was talking about him. And that's when it prompted me to think back to remember what I had heard about Mr. Mitchell and that he took all of his meals at my great grandparents' restaurant and that um, uh, 
my mom knew him. So I guess my aunt would have known him too. So a lot of people knew him. Did you get details on why, what was so special about Mr. Mitchell? Why was he the sole black person who was allowed to stay? Well, I didn't put it in the book because I couldn't verify it. But the person that I did the interview with said that he had, she believed he had been brought to Lincoln uh, as a boy, that, that someone had been traveling through the South and saw him walking on a dirt road and asked about him and asked about his family and he indicated he didn't have any and so he was uh offered to come to you know if you want to come with me and live in lincoln and whatever you can so i really know very little about how he got there i don't know what the facts are just what this lady said to me and and i don't know how accurate it it is I do know I I do know that he that well all I was gonna say is that I do know that he came to Lincoln that he lived in an apartment above the bank, that he took his meals at my grandparents great grandparents restaurant and I know he's buried in the Lincoln Cemetery. Passing. That's they don't have a, a Negro section there, so he's just at the cemetery because <laughs> they don't have enough black people. Um, that- well, they, there's a there's quite a um, that's one of the things that I have been really pleased to see is that Lincoln is has gotten a lot more black families um, as well as Hispanic families uh, since I lived there so long ago, and so. Um, uh, I think that's good for the town. No longer a racially restricted region, which is the case with many no. of these locations. Um, but that no. is in James Lowen's book where he talks about how in many of these racially restricted regions, so-called sundown towns, they will have like one black person or maybe like I read from the census in Rocky Ford in Colorado for many years, they had like 14 or 12 mm-hmm. black people total and that's it it'll be like you said it'll be maybe one white person brought in a black person or they have a live-in nanny or chauffeur or some subservient type of a thing but other than that and either generally they have no children we even heard this in south africa either they have no children or they'll have uh girls if they have little girls they can have little girls they can stay and go to school that sort of thing but no boys they gotta beat it might be a rapist or something jack johnson ugh. Uh, but we have heard this repeatedly and they might live in the house and everybody gets along with them. They can hang out and all that, but anybody else might be trouble. Uh, finishing. So this is right. The next paragraph after James Mitchell, the sole black resident, as I see it, when you commit to telling the story of your life, you're committing to tell the truth. And the ugly truth is that back in those days, I was a racist everyone was we children used the n word uh, i don't say the n words i'm going to switch this but i'm acknowledging the author cindy intricant she said the n word she already told she doesn't say you know negra but i do not sanitize like really we children said negra without thinking just like our parents 
And once we were older, if we thought about it at all, we thought of it simply as a way of identifying people who weren't like us, not our skin color, not our intelligence or capability, certainly not our status in life. Woo! That is stunning. Now this one, I have to slow down a bit. Who initiated all of this? Did you ask her all of this? And she said this, like, what in the world? No, no, because she was dead by that time. Uh, my editor, the person who <laughs> taught me, I guess, to write, told me years ago when I was first working on the book, um, you remember I said at the beginning that I didn't start working on the book until after Annie Isla had died. Um, my editor said to me, you know, if you're writing this book uh, in a first-person account, you are Isla. And so what I wrote there is what I believe. And I... I hope Ira, Ira, Isla believed it, but I don't know. She, she, I never had a chance to ask her about her uh, about her self awareness of her earlier racist views and later uh, views about race and racism. Okay, that's good to know. The editor said that you are Isla in this book, so you've taken your great aunt's uh, perspective. That wow, that is interesting to know. Okay, especially for this paragraph, you're like, wow. Okay, why was that? Was that uh, was that feedback for the book in general or for this portion specifically? No, for the whole book. Okay, okay. Hmm. Hmm. I was a racist. Everyone was. We children use that. Did you you confirm that Isla Negra Waiva? Yes, Nick, okay. I did. Yeah, I did confirm that. That because um, after my mom had talked about Mr. Mitchell, then then I did ask my grandmother about it, and I had to ask her to stop using that word because I just thought it was disgusting. Um, she didn't see anything wrong with it. Because I guess because that's the word, the, the name that that the townspeople gave him, as near as I can tell. Like I said, he died years before I was born, so I I don't know for sure. But as near as I can tell, that was the that was the name that the, he was given when he came to town, and everybody used it, and never seemed to to give it a second thought. Mm. When you say, uh, I was racist, speaking in the perspective of your aunt Isla, everyone was. This right here, see, it's hard for me to read this and think that James Mitchell is racist. This right here makes it seem like every white person was racist. Now, is James Mitchell racist well, too? Before I answer that, I want to say, yeah, I think every white person was racist, and I think every white person is racist. But I also believe that 
black people, uh, Native Americans, uh, Asians, that all people are racist. It may be, I mean, you have to acknowledge that within uh, the African-American community, there is sadly a uh, view among some people that that lighter-skinned African-Americans are less uh, okay than darker-skinned African-Americans. Oh, can I answer uh, that? Because that seemed like a question. Sure. You said, I ha- okay. Uh, my answer, uh, Cindy Entrican, our guest, author of Isla's War, uh, absolutely. I have to, I have to be honest. We've been talking about that all evening. I have to be truthful. Absolutely. That exists. Brown paper bag and, and bleaching creams. My goodness. We got, Hey man, we got lots of folks. Even remember Senator Harry Reid. He said that the whole reason Obama won is because he had a white mother from Kansas. He's not too dark and he speaks pretty good English. He doesn't sound like the rest of these colored people. It doesn't sound like Jack Johnson and all that. I mean, Hey, lots of black people believe that. That, in my view, is not practicing racism. That is really just more evidence that they are victims of racism. And I would ask, who do you think is most to blame for black people thinking that it's cool to be light skinned? Black, get back. Who do you think is most no, to blame? No, I agree for that? with I, It comes from the, the, uh, the white view that that light skin or the white skin is is the acceptable uh, color and that or acceptable skin color and that a darker skin color isn't acceptable. There's no question about that. And I agree with you that that people, black people who have that view, probably are unaware that they are that they have absorbed. Uh, a racist, a white racist belief. How is James? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. It would confound me if you, not you personally, but you in the general term that people of another race, as I said, is a, is a social construction, is a, are not racist. How, um, I'm trying to think of examples of the view that all white people are racist all the time is seems to me to be racist saying that I as a black person have never held racist thoughts about whites that would I would find that confining because confounding because the racist while it's accurate to say Say that um, some. Well, it's accurate to say that white people can are racist. Isn't it also accurate to say that 
some white people are aware of their racism and are constantly trying to confront it. Is that a wrong statement? We started out, I thought, I was asking, trying to figure out how non-white people practice racism and then somewhere in there Mm -hmm. she said that she didn't think it was accurate that all white people practice racism all the time and I said whoa who who said that I don't remember did you hear someone say that this evening Mm -hmm. ever really well it could be just the way I was interpreting but don't you wait a minute but did you hear that did you hear me say that no, no, I okay. didn't. Okay, okay. That's, <laughs> That's important. I have heard you say that black people are not racist. Right, which is totally different than what I just said. <laughs> that you said that, yes, that all, you don't think I it's think accurate that wrong. all white people practice racism that, all the time, which no one said. I, now, then we get to the second portion where you said you it confounds you to to think that black people don't have racist thoughts about white people. That was your next statement, which, again, we come back to this. Do non-white people practice racism? I am sure that many, many, I'm sure James Mitchell had a lot of hostile thoughts about your grandmother, your grandfather, your entire white family. Do you think James Mitchell ever practiced racism against any of the white people in Lincoln, Kansas? Well, I don't know. Using um, logic, You're st- did, any, did anybody who talked about him, did they give you any stories about, man, that James Mitchell, he gypped me out of a barrel of peaches. Man, that James, I lent him a gallon of soap and I never saw it. Did anybody, they have any stories where James Mitchell got over on or <laughs> tricked some people? No, but it, no, they didn't. But is that, a, is that your definition of racism is getting over on somebody? There would have to be some mistreatment. And I didn't hear anything about James Mitchell mistreating anyone. It sounded like he was in a pretty powerless position. That was what we said before, subjugation. It didn't sound like Mr. James Mitchell was in a position to subjugate, mistreat anyone. He was a victim of subjugation and mistreatment. Yes, he was. So if he thought, regardless of what thoughts he might have had about your grandmother or all of the white people in Lincoln, that doesn't translate to him having the ability to practice racism, does it? No, but I don't think I said he was racist, did I? I have said that all that I believe that all people have racism or are exposed to it and that that the only way that you, uh, if there's such a thing as defeating racism, it's going to happen when with each individual questioning their own actions and beliefs. Don't you think? <sighs> Let me, I want to get to uh, the next section of my book. I'll have to ponder on that. You for don't want to answer Cindy. my question. I'll have to ponder. I'll have to ponder on that one for a second because I feel like you you are you are bamboozling us, uh, not being truthful, which is what I would expect from uh, someone classified. Let me ask this one. Let's see what type of answer. Do you think it's logical for us to be suspicious of you or anyone classified as white 
do we think it's logical for us to be suspicious that you could be being dishonest with us as long as the system of white supremacy, white supremacy racism exists? I, you're going to have to ask me the question again, please. Yes, ma'am. Do you think we as non-white people, do you think it's logical for us to be suspicious of you as a white woman, you and or anyone classified as white, that you could be being dishonest with us as long as the system of white supremacy racism exists? I think it's logical to be suspicious. Yeah, I do think it's logical to be suspicious. But just how long does the test go on? As long as the system of white supremacy racism exists, um, is that logical? Well, while the, yes, but the system is. If you're you're saying, is it logical to be suspicious of me as a white woman? Okay, so if there were, I don't know where are you. You said you were two time zones away. Are you on the east coast or the west coast? That's. I keep thinking you're you're trying to to bamboozle us because one no, that would I'm be that would be I'm irrelevant. Is if you and I ever had the chance to meet face to face, that I would I do believe that it's logical that you would be suspicious of me as a white woman. So if we ever met face to face, um, I just don't how. How would it ever be possible for for me to for you for me to uh, do whatever I needed to do so that you would not be suspicious anymore? Or would it if we met face to face and knew each other over a thirty year period? Would we? Would you always be suspicious of me, no matter what I said or did? <laughs> I'm laughing because you. We started the broadcast, and I asked you, Cindy. She did ask me to call her first name basis. I never do that with guests, but she asked, uh, and I was asked Cindy if she had read uh, President Obama's memoir, Dreams from My Fire. Hey, fellow memoir, right there, uh, Kansas roots even. And she said no, she hadn't read it. Big stack of books. Me too. Um, he talks about this exactly. I would answer your question, but I totally forgot. Now you'll be really motivated to read President Obama's dream from my father because this comes up. What can a white person do to be trusted by a victim of white supremacy? And you don't even have to read halfway through the book. This comes up very early in the life of our former young or at that time, young former president uh, Barack Obama it comes up explicitly like can't miss it explicitly it's like two or three pages where he talks about this in great detail oh we talked about it on the, the book club reading is more important than watching television now I'm gonna get Beth, back to I the, can't help but let me let me get to my think. question let me get to my my question you when you if you, you read haven't the book, answered my question I t- I, it's so you rich I just gave you such a rich answer when you read the book I know no you no will. no you didn't answer my you personally did not you did it's not answer right there my question you told Read me the book. that you told that me is my answer yes it's right there in the book when you read the book that is my answer and i'm telling you, you don't even have to read like 
this is not the last chapter or nothing. I didn't, you know, do you uh, do you wrong okay, as so they I'm might going, say? I'm going to conclude from this. Wait a minute. Let me get to my question because you're messing. You're messing up. You're not letting me get my questions about the book. We're supposed to be talking about this war. Hang on a second. Well, I'll let you get that in, but you're you're not letting me get my questions in. You're not interviewing me, man. Uh, Now you wrote about James Mitchell because most of this gets right to the core of what we're talking about. You wrote it should come as no surprise that we didn't refer to Lincoln's black resident as Mitchell Mitchell, Mister Mitchell, but as See, that's why I can't do the switches. I'm reading it the way I want, not the way she wrote it. Accurate. But as Negra Jim, Negra Jim was born in the Deep South and had lived in Lincoln since the 1880s. During the early years, he'd supported himself by working for area farms. But the last 30 plus years of his life, he worked for a prominent family, white, of course, and lived on the main street in an apartment over the Celine Valley Bank. And he took all his meals at our restaurant, as she told us, thinking about James Mitchell makes me think about my own racism so this is her speaking as aunt isla again how i hurt jim whom i loved when i was a kid listening to his stories about the old south and his travels without even realizing i was belittling him and how i hurt others as well for instance i said nigra to describe my patience on the negro now this is in quotes so official Negro ward of the teaching hospital where I went to nursing school. I even used it in a few letters home when I wrote about patients I helped treat during the war. That'd be World War II. Man, oh man. That's what I mean about, wait a minute, man. We got important chunks of the book that we didn't even get to. Like, well, and particularly knowing what I know now, this is you speaking in the voice for your aunt. Like, what in the world? Like, <laughs> So you didn't get to have a conversation where she admitted all of this, that, you know, she's come to some realization that she wronged Nigra Jim and she shouldn't have called him that. And with even the stories part, did you confirm that, that they, she used to sit around and be regaled by his, you know, travels and such? Yes. Um, create with, again, I'm going to have to re- go back to, um, creative writing license, writing creative license that um, in this instance, this is from a series of conversations I had with my mother. My mom did talk to me and was aware that and told me that of her final, finally coming to realize that calling him that name was demeaning to him Hmm. and that, that it was something that, um, that she regretted, and she she also did tell me that he that he used to uh, he loved children, and that that he would tell them stories of his life in the South. So in that instance, in I I pulled. Pardon me. I just I'm I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm just knowing what the both of so, us know. Don't lose your your point, please. But just knowing what we know. I'm trying to think. So I'm a black male in night early 1900s America in you pick Alabama, Texas, Mississippi, Florida, Georgia. Whew. What kind of fun adventure would you have to tell about being a black dude visiting any I, Jack Johnson got arrested for white slavery at this time and he was heavyweight champion of the world. Like what sort of story? I- yeah, go ahead. I'm, that's what I, I was thinking. Know. 
Well, <laughs> I don't have any idea what what he what kind of stories or conversations they had. All I know is that uh, my mom, among other children, spent time with Mr. Mitchell and that they uh, enjoyed spending time with him and that he talked to them and told them stories either. I don't know what he talked about, his life, or maybe he told them fairy tales, you know, like you sit down and you talk to a child and you might tell them to entertain them some kind of fairy tale that you've heard or read or something. I have no idea. What I do know is that my mom came to the realization that the name that she had always used, that she'd heard everyone else use, was demeaning and that she wouldn't do it, wouldn't use that name anymore. And so I took that information, that that set of memories that she told me about and I used them and assigned them to Annie Isla only because I never had the opportunity to have a conversation with Isla about Mr. Mitchell. Hmm. It's amazing. Uh, did you did you see the talking about old movies with a disclaimer? Have you seen uh, any of the Disney uh, Song of the South movie? Yeah, I talked with a friend of mine, um, a black social worker, uh, about that specific movie uh, because the movie itself portrays uh, such a myth. Um, you know, of the happy black workers, slack slaves of the South, um, that that we we all know is not remotely approaching the truth. But the movie, and then the movie, I think, romanticizes the the life of black people in the South. I'm not sure. I don't. I saw it as a kid. I don't know. Uncle Remus. Do you remember that character? Yeah, I do. But what I was getting ready to say is I don't know in the movie what era it's supposed to be uh, shown in, whether, you know, maybe you know that better than I, I, but I know that it portrays a myth uh, of, you know, but I don't know what else you're asking me about it i think it's 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 a classic they still play it now and and all of that uh because it's time really i i didn't know that i didn't now i thought that that disney didn't i thought it had been pulled from their catalog i'm sure you can find it on one of those turner classics or whatever the case may be especially if they just take out you know like uncle remus's part and that type of a thing. Like I, I remember I've talked to white people where they've said like, they love this movie and they're sad that it's not in greater distribution because of the racism and they have to hunt to get the, you know, rare copies. I'm sure if you really want to check it out, it's available. Um, but the uncle Remus, uh, that one reminded me so much of Mr. Mitchell, Negra Jim affectionately, um, sitting around and telling white, uh, white children stories on the plantation about how great it was like, wow, that was so song of the South. Like, man, um, uh, but I think it's classic. It's supposed to be reminiscing about the good old days on the plantation, which 
could be any time <laughs> they're sitting around and now uh 50 years ago 50 years forward that's you know classic as i said um the, the i don't know like did you man i guess you said your mother said that i guess isla did have some regrets eventually about calling him nigra jim and listening to these yeah. stories eventually so do you think she would have been in line with this kind of uh I don't know, Mia culpa with all this, like what you, I practiced races. I, mm, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, I think so, because, you know, when Isla, when Isla came back from the war, um, even, and, and of course, during that time, the military was segregated. So she didn't, uh, as far as I know, didn't have much or any opportunity to work with, black uh, nurses or black doctors during the war. And I don't know how many black patients she might have seen, but I do know when she came back, um, she worked with Carl Menninger uh, at the Menninger Clinic, and she went into psychiatric nursing and uh, worked with adults with mental illness up until she retired um, and worked with uh, black nurses and doctors and patients in uh, for, I don't know, 30 years or something like that. Hmm. Did you get, like, when you talk about her time working the Negro ward uh, and referring to black patients as Negras, did you get any more detail about the Negro ward? Um, no, I didn't. I didn't know anything about it until I got the letters and started reading them. You know, I, uh, first thing I had to do was put them all in date order because they start, the letters start when she started nursing school in 19, um, 30, 34. I think that's right. She started nursing school in 1934 up until I read those letters after got them in date order I had never heard I didn't know anything about there being separate wards at the teaching hospital fascinating that's what I mean even that right there in terms of it's just there's so much data there's so many books and reports uh, that institutionally black patients do not get the same treatment as white patients, even if there are non-white healthcare workers. In fact, it's institutionalized. She says uh, in the Negro ward uh, at the teaching hospital, I referred to black patients as Negroes, as Negro, excuse me, that is rife. Uh, we've had uh, black medical doctors uh, on this program and other people who have gone through other black people, med students, med school students, where they've talked about the same institutionalized white supremacy racism where you cannot expect any result and even the keeping black people out of these fields for years, decades, deliberately, uh, all of that equates to, and the recent data even that they have about that, how much of an impact it makes not having black physicians, non-white physicians for healthcare, all of that goes to what I was saying before. It's just institutionally non-white people do not get the same, even non-white doctors don't get the same treatment as uh, white doctors and healthcare workers. Um, the, 
and that, that Nick wrote that's so important because we've been talking about healthcare workers a lot on the program of late. Of late. Um, you even and you used that same metaphor uh, that you used on the program before about floating racism and uh, there it is. I'm not proud to admit my racist beginnings and sometimes a racist idea just seems to pop into my head from outer space. Now th- you said this is you speaking for Isla. Is this true for you as well? Not speaking for Isla for yes. you. Can, wow. Can yes. you give can you give me an example of when a racist idea just pops into your head from outer space? Yeah. Recently, and I can't tell you how long ago, I was driving someplace and I saw a young black man walking along the sidewalk, and I don't know why, but his pants were pulled so far down that I could see his underwear. And I wanted to pull over and say to him, young man, pull your pants up so that you look more dignified. And then I thought to myself, that that was me being racist, that I noticed it, and that I wanted to say something to him, that that was me being out of line. Much obliged for sharing. You see undignified looking white people on a regular basis in Kansas, I suspect. What? I said, you see undignified looking white people in Kansas. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> I see I every time I see a guy walking around with his underwear showing, I want to say to him, pull your pants up. Well I didn't say the I, pants I, specifically. I just said you see undignified looking white people, period. Yes. Like they could be undignified yes. for a yes. lot of reasons. But I suspect yes. you don't but feel yes. the need to go and correct them and straighten up and, you know, be a dignified white woman, be a dignified white man, be a dignified, you know, white boy or whatever it happens to be. I suspect you don't get the urge to do that, do you? No, I think that's a perfect example of me being racist. Okay, that's that is that is profound phrasing, I will say, and I've seen I've talked about this for more than a decade and metaphors again, racist ideas just seem to pop into my head from outer space when that happens I have to look at it call it what it is free floating racism and flush it out of my mind just like flushing sewage down the toilet I mean man that's different metaphor altogether I mean I don't know it's man (laughs) pop in from outer Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what it is that that you are finding disagreeable are it or that you're that you are finding to ridicule i am admitting to a racist idea that that occurred to me suddenly i'm driving down the street not paying attention generally listening to npr and i see something and a racist idea pops into my mind And then I recognize it for what it is. And I say to myself, where did this bullshit come from, Cindy? This is crap. Get rid of it. 
now I say to you, Gus, what what is wrong? What is what what is it that you believe I am doing mistakenly if I am when I am confronting the crap in my mind? Should I not do that? Uh well one, I, I vociferously uh reject the label that I ridiculed in any way because I specifically I was ambiguous. I didn't really know what to make. I didn't say that you did anything wrong. Um, I didn't call you names or anything of the sort. No, I just you said didn't. I don't I mean metaphors, which I've, you know, said a number of times and I've pointed that out for decades um uh, when I speak, when listeners call in, we read books, anything. It's very important to pay attention to metaphors uh in books and just when people speak. Uh George Orwell and many other prominent white authors have talked about this as well for many decades. Uh and I did not ridicule. Uh what can you pick out specifically okay. what I did to ridicule you? Okay, that may have been the wrong word for me to pick to say. But Gus, some time ago in our interview, you asked me to give an example of racist behavior on my part. And at the time, I couldn't think of one. So I have now thought of one, and I have said it to you and to your listeners. That doesn't... uh, in, in my mind, that is an admission of something that I don't like in myself. And when I stumble across it, as just now we did, I don't like that it was there, that it is there, that I have to continue, that it conti- that, that some racist thought occasionally comes into my mind, and I... If I don't recognize it, then I'm liable to act on it, which would be even worse. Okay. Well, one, I want to point that out because that is major. It's in, we did get a, that was not the correct choice of words because I did not ridicule uh, our guest. I didn't even know what to make of uh, the metaphor. And that is important because white women and white men, one way they practice racism is frequently false claims of victimhood seen that with the bird watching incident and even many incidents of rape uh, all the way back to Emmett Till uh, start with a white woman lying uh, that they are a victim of some black brute behavior and that wasn't the case I was just you know examining I didn't even say you did anything wrong I will point specifically with the metaphors and we got another one just now as you were talking you said you acknowledged as a white woman I do have racist thoughts and sometimes, hey, this might even change into racist acts. I'm not surprised. You are classified as white, and you've said yourself, all white people practice racism. You said this before. None of that should be surprising. Didn't... Yes, you did. Yes, you did. That's in the archives, but that's not the point for right now. Yeah, no, you no. said, I, hang I, on a second. It's, hang not... on a second. You're interrupting me. You're interrupting. I'll let you finish. But I'm saying it's in the archives that you said that, so we can listen and see. You just said you stumble across aspects of your own racism if it's a racist thought like with this black dude and his pants sagging or whatever it was and your impulse to correct him uh, when you stumble across things of this nature that you are ashamed of it you feel bad about it even that verbiage metaphor stumble across that 
as though you are the victim of some misfortune. You stumped your toe or maybe even someone tripped you. That's not what this is. This, this black dude didn't do anything to you. He's minding his business. You had these. And even with that, I said the metaphors, it's not we're in a system of white supremacy, racism. I am a white woman. I am racist. Everything about this environment, Amos and Andy, they got different generations of it. Uh, Birth of a Nation, all kinds of content, songs, films, everything encourages me to mistreat dark people. I live in a racially restricted region that's been like this for eons. Maybe they still don't even have too many dark people. And if they do, they're in subservient positions, positions. Everything about this encourages I'm supposed to be in a position of power. We're supposed to look down on, mistreat, maybe some paternalism. We look out for nigger Jim, but I mean, he's nigger Jim. He can eat at the restaurant, stay above the bank, but he's nigger Jim. That's what I am supposed to do. And white people remind me if I'm not behaving correctly. That is a very different articulation of why you would think, act like this as a white woman, as opposed to racist ideas seem to pop into my head from outer space I stumble and practice racism all of that is very I pointed this out for years it's very vague it's very ambiguous and we even have more of the white victimization it does not adequately explain my definition it's white dedication to racism why you end up having generations of white people who think and behave like this in mass does evidence support I'm accurate in what I'm saying Cindy Intrican or am I if I'm flawed let me know I don't know gosh I got lost in all the words oh, I've said that I many times see, when I've been talking I to you this evening myself, I do not see myself as a victim saying the words I stumble across some disgusting idea that has popped into my head does not mean that I am a victim. I did not mean to imply that. That is your interpretation, which is one of the wonderful things about reading a book is that each of us as readers brings our own life experience and interpretations into what we read. So that's how you have interpreted it. Mm-hmm. Well, for accuracy, that was not in the book. That was what you just said in talking about the black male with his pants hanging down, uh, which is also not in the book unless I misinterpreted. No, it's not uh, in the certainly, book. Certainly, you're, you're interrupting, you're interrupting, you're uh, interrupting. I don't know how anyone is to interpret stumble. <laughs> now, if you think to stumble, you're interrupting again. If anyone listening, if you think to stumble, an act of stumbling, that's how it's defined as a noun. If anyone thinks that that is, oh, an act of, of great fortune, of good luck. No, stumbling is hazardous. People have died. You might even have a medical emergency. if you stum- Certainly for folks who are older, like our guests, like that is serious business. Like stumbling, they take great, even for children might have to what they call children proof the house make sure that you don't have hazards because they are known to stumble I could be misinterpreting you're absolutely correct uh, I did just want to ask before we wrap things up are you familiar with Roger Golubsky 
Do you know that name? Is that name familiar to you at all? Oh, I guess she hung up. That's cool in the gang as well. At the stumble part, I love it. I love it. I love it. At the stumble part, I went to actually look up the definition for stumble. Don't interrupt me. Get like sassy about things and be inaccurate. You didn't even say stumble in the book, man. This has nothing to do with reading uh, and what have you. You're talking about how you have racist thoughts and use the language stumble across. That sounds like you're the victim. Oh man, I didn't even see this. That's related to that whole unconscious bias, unaware, right? We've talked about that before. I didn't even, oh, and whoops, oh, I fell. Oh man, people stumble and break bones and such, man. Have to dial 911 and hope that they come in a timely manner. I could be in error. Anywho, that was our guest. Uh, and that was another one, man. Don't be bamboozling us like trying to use buckets of words and come in and say, she said before, everyone practices racism. We got to her specifically. We got stumbles and took more time, buckets of words. Keep getting back to, yes, non-white people. And first she said, black people can't practice white supremacy. That's not logical. And then we got back to everyone practices racism. No inoculation. Later on, we got specifically, she said, all white people practice racism. I was even going to go back and highlight, but we've heard that a number of times on the program. Even this year, we've heard that a number of times from white guests then she tried to hop in and say that she didn't say that come on now come on and the white but we had double white victimization she said stumble across and then she uh said that gusty was ridiculing me i mean i'm just pointing out the metaphors man i don't even know what to make of it from outer space like wait a minute like wait we got the Martians they've been saying they got the UFOs and the spaceships at least in the US they've been saying this like the FBI and official white government officials they've been talking about that a lot over the past calendar year got the spaceships Marvin the Martian is out there men in black Will Smith where are you at brother anyway Uh, We'll take a quick break. I'll try and make sense. uh, Give some of my thoughts, what we heard from the broadcast. uh, Give our update for book club coming up. See if folks who listening in have any thoughts, what they heard uh, from Cindy Intrican. Let us know if you learned anything. Uh, We will be right back. Uh, Let's see. Quick section from Mr. Fuller. I guess I'll give out my quick uh, what it do for Thanksgiving and all that as well. Context of white supremacy. We will be right back. Got another term on there, VGQ. What does that mean? Victims Guaranteed Qualification. Now, that keeps you from getting into arguments with other black people, particularly on television, which I get sick of that. Black people shouting. You know, we get into our ghetto thing. Once we get on television and get wound up, and we start all yelling at once. And the racists sit there smugly and just look. They watch the tennis match, so to speak. Right. 
and black people are shouting each other down, talking about, you don't know what you're talking about, and so and so and so and so, and we go into our Amos and Andy and Sapphire Act. Okay. BGQ means Victims Guaranteed Qualification. Guaranteed qualification to do what? To give your opinion on anything about race. Don't care what it is. If you're on there with uh, Minister Farrakhan or you're on there with uh, Mike Tyson or you're on there with uh, Miss, what's her name, Williams, the lady that had him put in, you know, recommended that he be put in jail, or you're on there with uh, anybody. See, don't cut the other black person down. I don't even like that term, brother and sister, even though it's been around for about 30 years. But I ain't, I ain't going to talk about the brother here, I don't, you know. No. See, we haven't reached that stage where we can do that. See, we got we got to crawl before we walk, and but we don't miss any steps. Don't say you are what you're not. Don't say you feel something that you don't really feel. You don't really feel that he's a brother. I usually use the expression, I don't like anybody in here. I say that to all audiences. I haven't been taught to like anybody. I've been taught to dislike people. I've been taught that. And then they're taught to dislike me, so it's just compounded disliking. I haven't even got to love yet. All right. So what we do is minimize conflict, try not to hurt each other. So a certain thing, that's what a code is for. It's a stopgap. It keeps me from saying something against you. You say, well, don't you agree with uh, what this person just said down here on the other end and whatnot? That person has VGQ, Mr. Donahue. I keep using him because he's one of the most prominent uh, TV people. Right. But the main thing you do is try to stay off of a radio program or TV program or even a neighborhood stage program, you might say, where you spend your time shouting back and forth at other black people. Nothing is getting done there. And when it's done on television, a lot of black people just get up from the TV set and go on in the kitchen somewhere. Once that shouting starts, yeah, they get disgusted. Say, you know, they say, oh, here we go. They started off okay, but now they are, you know, they're doing a job on each other, and I don't even want to hear it. So just don't do it. And you cut it off. The cutoff point is that person has... Victims guarantee qualification. You spell it out what it means. Meaning the person can say anything about race that they want to, and I can say anything about it that I want to. You you are guaranteed that. You earn that as a victim. Simply by being a victim. Now, if a white person says something, that's something else. Buddy. <laughs> All day. Every day. All day, every day. If a white person says something... That all together different. Man, oh man. Do you all remember Dignified Soldiers? Big L? It's 50 years of hip hop, right? 50 years of hip hop, the late great Big L. Dignified Soldiers? They don't remember that. Anyway, uh, it's, don't, it's not constructive, it is sound. Not music, but dignified soldiers. <laughs> Mr. Fuller, what's the difference between dignified, undignified negros? 
Anyway, was was James Mitchell his problem? The reason he didn't better his situation in life because he was undignified? Affectionately, nigger Jim, that was why he couldn't be James Mitchell. He had to die to be James Mitchell in life. He had to live as nigger Jim because he was not, he was undignified. <laughs> I'm going to switch it up. I'm going to make that my memoir, Undignified Negra. That's my <laughs> Undignified Negra. That's our pride. We undignified. I'm going to tell you, it's nothing dignified about being a victim of white supremacy racism. I wouldn't care how much you take. Let's see. You can get President Obama undignified, getting death threats, historic number. He couldn't even win his own state. It's undignified being a rental James. Take your pick. The rapper Will Smith, man, ain't it undignified? Ain't it undignified? Jack Johnson, gotta hope they give you a pardon a hundred years later. Undignified Negra. Anyway, uh, invest in the cows. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal button in the top right corner. You'll see the links beneath Cash App, Venmo, and PayPal. Enormous gratitude to the investors who have kept us broadcasting. If I am alive in February, Negro History Month, month filled to honor undignified Negros. 15 years. Counter racist broadcasting. Uh, invest if you think the program has been continues to be constructive worthy of your time and energy thank you even had an investor got from my wish list at amazon.com the book for this evening's program which I did read from liberally she didn't even want to let me read Alice War but I had it on my wish list briefly bang much obliged share the program as always that's another way you can always invest with non-white people, victims of racism, if you think it is constructive. I will say, talk about undignified. Talk about undignified. I had to waste a bit of my day requesting again, again, that non-white people, cows, listeners, and beyond, please do not contact me to name call non-white people. What my man's name, James Mitchell. Nigger Jim. Could have been Coon Jim, all the same. That's what we've been for years. The worthless coon. That's what the, they literally have a professional boxer. Mentioned Jack Johnson. I think he might have fought Jack Johnson the same era. The Dusky Coon. Nigger Jim. That's what they called. That's what they call us, real talk. But I mean, really. That's what we've been. All coons look alike to me. That's how white people see all of us. We think. Oh, it's just that. No, 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 no. You too. All coons look alike to me. Platinum hit. Remixed many times. 
but I had to waste time. Racist guest pending. I got to waste time. Can you please not email me to name calling? And in fact, that name calling is vociferously defended. We wouldn't be having this conversation if you all name called to yourselves or each other. No, 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 no. You all seek me out to name call. When I've made it explicit, no name calling. We've ended the program, no name call for years. For years. If you want to do that, that's fine. I don't seek out non-white people for conflict to correct that. I don't do that. Why are you all contacting me to name call other non-white people that I don't even know? Sometimes you email me and message me, contact me to name call people that you don't know. Black people are very serious about not being very serious. Dr. Kamal Kambon Fuller's is black people are serious about things that are silly, like name calling other black people. And you know the thing that I find so significant? I've never had had this conversation about name calling white people people rarely name call white people very rarely nor any other groups of non-white people I don't hear people name calling Latinos they might complain and grouse I don't hear them get name called so called Asians I don't hear them get name called we might grouse and complain and they own these stores and I don't hear them get name called. I'm not saying that they don't, but that's not, you know, generally, I do not. The people that I hear name called pretty much exclusively, individuals classified as black, and frequently they will have four grandparents, all with a birth certificate, born right here in the U.S., but we still find a reason they're a coon all coons look alike to me platinum banger that's noise too really put that right up there with dignified soldiers but still no name calling I've made that very clear (laughs) keep it moving really you can chat amongst yourselves other people that's one thing I'm very proud of I do not name call on this program I don't name call other black people you don't hear me come on here with the many many legions billions of non-white people who I don't have the same view that they do on racism or counter racism you don't hear me come on here and call them names and talk bad about them we have a white guest only policy if it's gonna be any sort of conflict and what have you where it should ask her who is most to blame for all of this is it the coon of the month is it the undignified negra that's to blame for all of this is it Cindy Intrican 
white people to blame for all of this. Those are the people that we should be angry with. Anywho, no name calling, no name calling, no name call. Really, I always think of that as a sign of how victimized we are. Like, wow, we just and think that we're doing something, making progress. Get right scientific in our defense of calling another black person a coon. Embarrassing, stupid, worthy of great pity. Now, what we heard today from Cindy Entrickin. Nigger Jim. Oh, man, I was waiting. How does Nigger Jim, James Mitchell, practice racism in Lincoln, Kansas, the only Negro allowed in this racially restricted region? How does he practice racism? Oh, okay, so everybody doesn't practice racism. Got it. See, and even, you know, you've got racist thoughts and get that. But white people know. That is not that you nigger Jim, really. I hope he has racist thoughts about white people. I hope he was sitting around thinking, Oh, if I get this shovel and go up to oh hey, how good to see you. That's right, Miss Waver. You look so lovely that yeah, thank you for my grits. Thank you. If I get this shovel and go out yes, I hope so. I hope black self respect to John I wonder what his life expectancy was. We privileged black male. Nigger Jim, aka James Mitchell wonder how long he lived in Lincoln, Nebraska. Can you imagine what his life was like? You don't have any friends. You don't have any family. You can't do a Zoom call. Nothing. Probably can't even go to the library. Like, what is he allowed to do there? I want, so it's super rural, so it's not like you got a whole lot of places to visit anyway. Can he? Is he allowed to go to the library? Can he read? I sit around and talk to racist children who called me nigger Jim and regale them with my times in the South where I was almost lynched by white children. James Mitchell, privileged black male, (laughs) man, man, I'm just, what is, and then let's say he lived to 70. I live above the bank. I go get my meal at the tavern (laughs) with the clan. (laughs) I'm wounded. I'm like, can he leave the town to go visit a few black people? Just, you know, I just, uh, just wanted to hear somebody call me James for five minutes. I just, uh, a little racist bastard. (laughs) I'm wounded. I'm wounded. James Mitchell. I feel you, man. I'm going to pray. Oh my God, I can't even. Uh. Nigra James. Um, I'm again speechless. And it's been, that should be a whole book because there are so many James Mitchells. I said that James Lowen in sundown towns should be racially restricted regions. I guess that's not as catchy, but he said there would be tons of James Mitchells. It's one of you. He, you know, was uh, whatever, made, chauffeur. I really love nigger Jim's grits, whatever. But this is my nigger. And, you know, I would die if nigger Jim wasn't with me. You know, what the hell? He's not bringing his whole family. You better not bring your. Yeah, he's not bringing his family. You know, we'll we'll get him neutered. That it's even rumors that they would do that type of thing. Sometimes I think that's even George Washington Carver. Right. 
rumored that he might have been castrated. Not, you know, beyond belief. Can't confirm. Um, but, so, I mean, geez. I'm going to have my nigra. He makes great grits, so he plants, you know, amazing watermelon or whatever. Or I'm having sex with Who knows? Who knows? Even the, oh, rethinking Rufus. Rethink. Oh, oh. There should be a book on that. I'm, I don't know how you'd have to research it. You'd have probably have to go and dig and um, visit a lot of that. That would probably involve digging and visiting a lot of sundown. A white person might have to do that because I think to really get the data, you probably have to do a lot of talking to old white people who would be like in their 80s, 90s. Do they have diaries and things of that nature, town records? But that could be a whole book. Sorry about that. Now, that could be a whole book. I would love to read it, research. I think a white person would probably do best, but hey, maybe even a research opportunity for black people. There are lots of, or even like there'd be two or three black people in the town and they like live in the cellar or the basement or some, you know, ghoulish thing like that. Uh, oh my Lord. I am so excited. I think that is the first time that I got to use that piece of codification Oh, man. In the name of pretty boy Floyd Mayweather. In the name of Sonny Liston. In the name of Mike Tyson. Roy Jones Jr. Francis Ngannou. Jack Johnson, the late Marvin Hagler. Oh, my God. Knockout punch metaphor. I said this summer. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. I want a white person. Please get on here again and tell me, oh, yes, undignified Gus. Everybody practices racism, even you black people. You know that Al Sharpton practices racism. Super count. That's really pretty boy Floyd Mayweather because that's a counterpunch. Like, oh, my God, I'm about to break your jaw since everybody practices racism. And you said it so confidently. How do you? practice racism and now you don't have no wiggle room because you said everybody so you're in everybody let's hear it every time that's when we stopped with all that confidence oh yes maybe nigger jim did practice racism uh, 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 well uh you know uh uh i read that you know you're not supposed to Look at the Negro children in the restaurant. You know, you're supposed to be nice. I don't, I don't, <laughs> ooh, no. I'm, I'm nice to all the little black Negro's children in the restaurant. You know, when we go, like, come on. Since everybody practices racism, you've been on the planet for seven decades. You live in a racially restricted region. You got to know a lot of ways that you have practiced racism in a white woman, as a white woman. Don't be bragging that you voted for Barack Obama, which could be a lie, but whatever, even if you voted for him three times. Tell me how you practice racism, since everybody, don't be all gleeful and jipper to tell me about how Negro Jim and us non-white people practice racism because we have some angry thoughts about racists. Yes, and even in fact, most of us don't. We have been so successfully brain-trashed 
we have a lot of hostile thoughts about other black people. You wait till I get that coon. That's most of us. Brain trashed, but that's most of us. She said, yeah, yeah. I said, ooh, ooh. He said, I practice. And then finally, because, well, you know, I was ready. We had that black dude, and I was going to tell him, pull your pants up out here being undignified. You ought to be shamed of yourself. Even that's kind of, oh, and we got the, she said, nigger when she was five. One of the children, I was, that would be a good one for racist jokes. Like, ooh, man, I am sure. I am sure. Woo. And even they're close enough to Topeka, Kansas. That's the name on the Topeka B, uh, Brown B Board of Education, Topeka, Kansas. It's right there for the 1954 Supreme Court decision. I was somewhat surprised that that didn't come up like her family didn't have thoughts about that. Like that was a big to do right there in the state and all the rest of it. And you've only had nigger Jim. I'm sure they would have thoughts on all this. Neither here nor there. Um the racial narrowing that she did at the beginning. I thought that that was really important as well. She tried what it is important. Obama did not win his home state. John McCain, like, are you serious? John McCain who rejected Dr. King as a national holiday. Anyway, that is significant about him losing, but really don't be talking to me and the Republicans are nuts. Nah, 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 nah. She didn't even say the Republicans are racist. And again, don't be trying to make it seem like all the racists just hopped over into the GOP, so-called. Not at all Billy Clinton, Joe Biden, really. Uh, the And the asking the all of those questions, there were so many times it was like a grapple to even get back to going through some of the important parts of the book where she does talk about racism from her great aunt, uh, and I guess herself, presumably, um, where she gets to the part about, you know, what, what I said, is it logical for us to be suspicious of you as a white woman? She said, well, I didn't understand. I got lost in all the words. If that isn't the snowflake calling the milk white. Anyway, I repeat my question. She says, yes, yes, it's logical for you to be suspicious. She says, you, you, you're telling me undignified Gus you're telling me if we met we hung out and all this meet in person have herba mate tea no sugar vegan muffin we chat talk about racism lynching in Kansas you don't think what what could I do get to a point you are not suspicious of me why does that even matter I'm not going to Kansas we're not <laughs> she had asked before like where where are you exactly what does that have to do with anything? Why are you pinpointing my location? Might have a drone. They had that in the paper today. They got armed drones. They said that is the new battlefront. I don't need the drone hovering. I'm trying to sleep. Whoa. Cindy mad about the interval. Whoa, what's going on? You're like, no, no, no. And what? Why is that even of concern? How long are you suspicious? Like, come on, man. Come on. All that all that deviating don't get lost a lot of times they'll try to bamboozle you asking questions and or being contradictory buckets of words lying when they answer she started off and that's one I deliberately say so can a non-white person practice racism white supremacy put that bang connection racism white supremacy 
she did the math she did the lie she even said it's not logical that a black person would practice white supremacy you're darn tootin you're darn tootin one plus one is two logic it's not logical that nigra jim was practicing racism that is not logical but then she came back to it later on i think you know we all practice racism yeah anyway it is in the archives she did say all white people practice racism which is not some oh my god i can't we've heard that many times many times even this year but then she had tried to act like she didn't say that later on it is in the archives if a listener did hear that grand you can let us know uh but it is in the archives for folks who want to get confirmation listen closely let's see if any of the folks dialed in uh, thoughts, what they uh, heard from Cindy, Intrican, uh writer, historian, admitted racist, I think, be accurate based on what she said, admitted racist. Uh, folks who dialed in, thoughts to share, a uh, victim in New Jersey. Hey, Gus, let me get to a slide, please. Um, yeah, for, first let me start off, Gus. Um, I haven't got a chance to call in on the book. Uh, Read. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I've, I've definitely been paying attention. Hopefully, I get the call in. Um, <laughs> you know, just the uh, what would I find? I'm, okay, is is this the first person to, to walk off the cow um, this year to just hang up early, like you know, without um, announcing that they're hanging up? I think so, right? I believe that is accurate. I thought that was important as well. Yes, that is pretty much. I think she's the first person to just hang up and dip. Oh, wow. Wow. And, and the cows is ending off on a great note. Well, I mean, yeah. So, um, ending a year, great. Um, the correcting black people that, that stood out to me, um, white people tend to do that a lot. You know, um, I've been corrected by a sassy white woman before. Um, that, that, like, that, that, like we're, we're still learning. This woman is in her 70s. So, I mean, what I found, there are some guests that with your questioning, you know, they reflect on themselves and they reflect on the larger, larger um, collective. It, it seems that it's an act of racism because, for one, they always either want to defend themselves or they want to defend the larger white collective. No, no, no self-reflection. No, no, no. Just like you know, why I didn't? I didn't. I mean, in some cases they do. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't think of it like that. Why? You know, and 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 take what they get from the cows and apply it to their everyday lives, or even if they're still in the field of education or writing, this is something that you can apply. A clear case of white people are not concerned or serious about solving the problem. They don't care. And when they do admit that, oh, yes, I have practiced racism, us as victims we're supposed to commend them. You know, they look for applause. 
That's why even when you ask the question, who's most confused about racism or who's more knowledgeable about racism, white people or black people, they go to black people. And, 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 and for my, for my assumption, I think that they do it for the exact same reason. They're just trying to be, they're just trying to get applause from black people. It's not to solve the problem, not serious at all. Um, when you said the knockout blow, the counter question, um, and I said to you a while ago, I said, uh, I said, wow, you know, I've been listening to Amy Goodman and Democracy Now for years, and nothing has changed. And you said, well, you know, can't that be said about the cow? But there's a difference. It takes a second to correct an incorrect response or an, inac- or an inaccurate response. It only takes a second. And I've only seen this done with the cows. Anybody else with, with journal- journalist credentials been interviewing people for years, they would let a question like that just go. They would just let somebody, oh, you know, everybody's racist. Oh, you know, everybody's capable of uh, being a carrier. Oh, you know, all of us, you know, you know, um, you know, have a little bit of, of, of colonizing. You know, I mean, you know, things like that, to give an example. So that's the difference between that and, the, you know, in the, you know, from other uh, programs in the cast. And even the racial narrating, and I'm glad that you caught that, you know, because these was wealthy store owners that stepped to her, uh, her great grandfather, a grandfather. You know, this wasn't this wasn't toothless Bob. You know, this wasn't um, um, you know dirty over, dirty overall um, Jim. You know, this was this this was this was these were businessmen, and this was a business decision. This was what Millie Fuller talked about. This was Godfather. Hey, I'm giving you an offer you can't refuse. That's what that was. But again, woman in her 70s, you know what I'm saying? I'm pretty sure well-educated, you know what I'm saying? You know, again, you know, doesn't understand how racism works. Nah, not, not at all. Not at all. Not buying it. I close. Much obliged, victim in New Jersey. I do indeed remember that we talked about that this summer. Um, Yeah, Amy Goodman hasn't changed. And, yep, I do remember that exchange. That was close to the time when I said that, like, oh, man, that is pretty boy Floyd would be. What's money now? My apologies. Money. TBE would be proud. That is going to be my counterpunch from now on like any individual classified as white I dare you I double dog dare you please I am waiting everybody practices raisins consistently their context is trying to insist that it's old Ben Crump it's old you know Michelle Obama y'all practice racism too well okay okay we'll get to that part of it later but since everybody practices racism tell us how you practice racism and we're not going to move until we get that all cleared up. Anywho, uh, yeah, the, the racial narrowing 
so important, uh, both with, you know, it's not just Republicans, it's not poor white people. These, as she said, these were like the the most powerful white people in the town, which incidentally, I think is why her white grandmother, Waver, when I asked her about that, I suspect that's why she left. Like, man, you've been out here brawling with the Clint. They run the town. Oh, my God. We're not even going to be able to hold our head up amongst the white people. You've messed it up. We're not even going to be good white people. I'm out of here. And left at 15. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I'm out of here. And this is, a, so you don't have a smartphone when you dip. No Zoom to check in with your parents. People, she said her parents didn't even own a phone. Maybe you can send a postcard or a letter or what have you. They can tell you about the lynchings or what have you. At 15, because your parents called, white parents called when that, again, if this had been black parents, they probably would have killed them. Or it's no problem. What am I talking about? It wouldn't have been no negotiation. They would have killed them and that's that. You've been lucky to get out and get on the train. Are you serious? Anyway, back of the bus, back of the train, back of the boat. Anyway, I will point out one important. Uh, I went back and I read the paper. That's the only reason this program happened today. I read the Kansas City Star because of Roger Golubsky, accused rapist facing charges former enforcement officer in Kansas City, Kansas, about, she said, I think three hours drive from Lincoln. Uh, But I read the Kansas City Star daily, pretty much now. And they had this article for my family. The Ku Klux Klan's grip on a small Kansas town was personal. Now, obviously, obviously, there's going to be a lot more detail in a book than an article. Obviously, that's why you read. But it doesn't exactly say in the article that her grandfather was friends with the Klansman. Now I'm reading it again, you know, to make sure. But yeah, like she says that in the book. Now she doesn't make it seem like this is a moral crusade, but she says in the book explicitly that he was homies with some of the clans people, which I think is important. Like I said, I think sometimes we get confused frequently into thinking that, Oh, the non Republican white people, they are not racist. She gave, she even did that instead of the, I have a black friend. I voted for Obama. Like that's even like, Oh my God, wretch, wretch. Oh, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You, you voted for him three times. Okay. Even white women, voted for President Trump most white elected voters supported him both times anyway uh, the article does not say that as explicitly as the report does and like I said we get so confused by that and thinking there's some cool white people that are not racist she did say that every white person practices racism duh heard that before on the broadcast uh let's see make sure didn't miss anything that i thought was uh important and these are both even in colorado like that's one of the reasons that i i mentioned james lowen's book all the time uh that 
Kansas, Colorado. He said basically the entire U.S. was one gigantic uh, so-called sundown town uh, where you couldn't just go anywhere. It would be one or two cities or counties that would allow black people in states like Michigan, Kansas, Indiana. You couldn't just go willy nilly that lots of these places, most of these places were what they call sundown towns. You might have a James Mitchell here or there, black female, one black female, one black. But like I said, I looked at the census for Rocky Ford, Colorado, 14 black people, I think in 1930. 14. So, I mean, at least there, maybe you all, everybody gets Sunday off. You can all go, you know, meet up and sing a song or two. Like I said, maybe we can get five minutes where I don't have to be called nigger Jim. Somebody actually call me James. Mr. Music to my ears. Jesus Lord. Anywho, um, we will be here for the book on Thanksgiving day. So called. So I guess if you, you know, are, are, I don't know. Maybe you're watching football. Man, I'm stunned. The Seattle Seahawks will be playing the Seattle, uh, the San Francisco 49ers Thursday, Turkey Day, during the book club. I'm stunned. I will be thankful to be away from the downtown area so I'm not near the stadium. But, man, I don't remember them ever having a home uh, Seahawks Thanksgiving game uh, ever, ever, ever. But that is happening on Thursday, uh, simultaneous with the book club, Blind Eye. Ah, I'm loving it. Uh, it. The racism will just get more explicit as we proceed. Ah, it is amazing. And what does it mean to be white? It is such a, a glaring illustration. I can't say it enough. Convicted white felon. And he can do better than probably a white person with an Ivy League degree. It is amazing. Anyway, and the late Gary Webb reference. Ah, amazing. My easily the book I have enjoyed the most in a year. Easily, easily. Ah, loving it so much. And the racism will just get more explicit as we proceed. All of that said, uh, Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Catherine Massey Book Club. Much obliged, uh, folks tuning in live or archive. Hopefully, worthy of your time and energy. I would say, other folks, let me know if you're around any white person and they say everybody practices racism. They are now open. How do you, sir, ma'am, practice racism? And see what they say. Anywho, uh, oh, the term stumble, man, she said when she looks at examples of where she's practiced racism or had racist thoughts, when she stumbles across, I said, that's another act or metaphor, white victim, stumble, an act of stumbling to trip or excuse me as a verb to trip or momentarily lose one's balance, almost fall. Now, I said, hey, I don't know how else to interpret that, but that sounds like more victimization. Does that sound like one is on the attack, on the offensive? Or does that sound like you tripped or momentarily lost one's balance, almost fall, stumble, 
stumble across a racist idea. I don't even know what that means to trip or moment you trip over a racist idea. What? What? <laughs> what does that even? You lost your balance on a racist idea? You almost fell down because of a ra- like, Come on. Come on. Come on. She said she was driving in a car, man. You receded. Come on. Metaphors. I said that consistent. She she tried to. She said I was up here ridiculing her. Words are so important. Like what? What? James Mitchell could have died if a white woman had accused him of ridiculing her. Real talk. James Mitchell could have that nigger. Jim could have died. He'd have been a dead, undignified nigger with no penis. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping no throwaway offspring cow signing up thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.